Well, for those of you who've been with us on Wednesdays uh, at my house, you know, as I shared, we've been going through Pilgrim's Progress, and it's a journey of a man uh, through, through life as a Christian. And you look at all the areas and all the side, side paths and all the adversaries and the difficulties he, he had in arriving at the celestial kingdom where he was headed. And what struck me the other day was this, was the parallels that I saw in the, in, in the book of Pilgrim's Progress and the first six chapters of the book of, of Romans. Because uh, remember how, 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 Rome, uh, how Pilgrim's Progress opens up. Uh, Christian lives in a city called the City of Destruction. And he's feeling the weight and the burden of his sin in his life. In fact, he's feeling the weight of condemnation. And he's carrying this burden around with him day after day. And, uh, and that's where the That's really where where Pilgrim's Progress begins. And that's also where the book of Romans begins. Because if you remember, as we looked at chapter 1 through 320, it opens up by describing to us that all mankind is under the condemnation of sin. I mean, we have Pilgrim over there. He's under the condemnation in the city of destruction. And then we see over here in the first chapter of Romans, all of mankind is is like Christian. We are all under the condemnation of sin. And then you remember what happened with, with uh, Christian. One day, an uh, evangelist comes to him, and he, he tells him about a, a celestial city. And he tells him that if he flees from the wrath and, and, and follows the direction he's sending him, he will, he, he will escape the wrath of God. And so what does he do? He leaves his family behind. He, he heads down this little path, and, and he's following uh, where he's directed to go all the way up to this little narrow gate. It's called the wicket gate. That's with a T, not a D. But the wicket gate, which means a small or narrow gate. And if, if he's to follow the way of evangelists, he must go through that gate. And we see the gatekeeper there is Jesus Christ. And, and it reminds us that if anyone enters into the kingdom of God, they must go through the gate. They must come through Christ. They must believe in Christ and trust in Him and Him alone. And then, and then he brings forgiveness, and, and not only that, he imputes to us all of his righteousness, and therefore we are, we are saved. Well, that's exactly the next section of, of, of Romans, isn't it? I mean, we think he goes from the condemnation for sin in the opening chapters, and then we see him going in chapter 321 through 5, going through what I just described, that the, the pilgrim experience, and that is, the justification by faith. And we saw laid out for us this great and glorious doctrine, a heed to the call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, His work on our behalf on the cross, and then as we trust Him, He forgives our sins. And not only does He forgive our sins, but we receive His righteousness. Sometimes it's called the great exchange where our sins are put to Christ, and then what happens? Christ's righteousness is put to us, and now all of a sudden we have right standing with God and we are forgiven forever. So you see how the two kind of correlate with one another. But it doesn't stop there. It actually goes into chapter 6, where we're going to be looking at today. Because the question then is, okay, Christian, you went through this narrow gate. You believe in Jesus Christ. You're now a Christian. What's next? What's next in the Christian life? Where, where do you go next? What follows after believing in Jesus Christ. 
Is that where it all ends? I mean, does this Christian turn around, go back through the gate, and then go back to the city of destruction and pick up right where he left off with his life of sin? Is that really the picture that we see of a Christian? Uh, that's the same question really that Paul's addressing here in the first two verses of chapter 6. What's next? What happens next? After you believe in Christ, what happens next in your Christian life? Let me ask you that question for you. For those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can look back at a day and a time where you say, I think I trusted Christ back then. Maybe I was 9 years old. Maybe I was 30 years old. What happened next in your life? What followed that? Was that the end of all that happens here on earth before you're waiting for God to take you up into heaven? Or is there something next? Well, I'll tell you this, if, if the gospel ends with entering in through the narrow gate, then Pilgrim's Progress would have been a very short book, just be a few pages long. And if believing in the Lord Jesus Christ alone was the end of the Christian life, then the book of Romans would have ended with chapter 5. There would not be 6 through 16. Um, you see, there's a lot more, isn't there? There's a lot more to follow simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd be closing the book of Romans last week. We'd be opening up to another book this week. I mean, if the gospel is just believe in Christ, you're saved, go back to your old life, live the way you did before, and when you die, you go to heaven, it's all going to be taken care of, you're a Christian, then it would all come to an end. But we have 11 more chapters to look at in the book of Romans. And so too in Pilgrim's Progress, the story didn't end with a narrow gate. No, it ended with a pathway. And the pathway was very narrow. And it was the the pathway of righteousness that you follow, the Christian would follow, all the way up until he died and entered into the celestial city. It was a gate that led to the pathway of what we might call sanctification, a life of holiness. The road of sanctification was the only road that that led to the celestial city for a Christian. There wasn't like, let's head back home and live a life of sin. No, you've went through the gate now. Now you're on the straight and narrow path, and now you're going to live a life of holiness all the way until you see Jesus face to face. And the same is true in the book of Romans. We see the parallel path there as well. Following justification by faith, ending with chapter 5, we pick it up at chapter 6, and now what happens after you believe in Christ? Well, what happens is this. We, we, we're sanctified. We're being sanctified, we're going to see. And that's chapters 6 through 8. It, it yields itself into a pathway of holiness. So notice how this chapter opens up. It opens up with a question. Paul being a great teacher, we've seen before, he likes to anticipate what his hearers are, are thinking, and he tries to address those in, in his, the points in his writing. Uh, just like a preacher does the same thing, they, they wonder what's going on in the mind of the, of, 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 of the pew, you know, and, and you think, okay, well, I might think this. So, so you raise an objection, and, and then you, you address, address it with an answer. That's exactly what he's doing here. So following justification by faith, he introduces sanctification. He introduces a a question, a matter of 
what he thinks his readers might be objecting to. Remember, he, what he just wrote in Romans 5, 20 and 21, and, and that is this, that uh, uh, the law brings what? Greater sin. Where sin abounds, what? Grace does much more abound. And so he's, he's thinking, I bet they're, they're wondering. They have questions about what I just wrote. Now, I broke the, these two, two verses down into two sections. You'll see in your bulletin there. One is the twisted objection. And the second is the terse response from Paul. So let's look, first of all, at the twisted objection. And he opens it up by saying, what shall we say then? I mean, after teaching that now the law came in to increase sin, trespass. But where sin increased, grace does much more abound. How do we respond to that kind of news? That in your life, where, where, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. What kind of an objection might come to the, to the hearer who would hear such good news? And here it is. He says, are we to continue to sin? that grace may abound? Do we habitually continue then, therefore, in sin? Are we like Christian who goes back to the city of destruction and just continue in our sin like we did before? He must have thought there were some in Rome who, were, who would raise such a question. Notice I call it a twisted objection because it's hard to believe that somebody would actually ask a question like that. If where sin abounds, grace does abound more, why not continue to sin more? Let's, let's, let's go for it. Let's let more grace be poured out. And, and look at the glory of God. It's going to be seen. And I got the freedom to sin. If you like Christian, you know, in Pilgrim's Progress, thinking now, gee, now that I've entered into this narrow gate, now that I have faith in Christ, now that my sins are all forgiven once and for all, and once I, you know, I can't lose my salvation, why don't I just go off and sin? Why don't I go back, to, back home and just pick it up where I left off? For God's glory, of course. We do it for God's glory. That's a twisted question. That is a twisted objection. Who would even ask such a question as that? Well, I believe a Jew might have asked that question in, in, in Rome at that time, reading this letter. There might have been some Jews who were in the church at that time who reasoned, well, wait a minute, if the law doesn't save, we've already covered that in Romans, the law doesn't save. The law actually provokes more evil and sin. And, uh, and sin brings more grace. Ergo, you know, therefore, uh, what? Well, maybe we should sin more. Common objection. And by the way, one of the common objections to Paul's preaching was that his preaching led to licentiousness. His, his, his preaching uh, led to, to people being tempted to, to go and sin. Um, we can see that in, 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 uh, in his writing, the libertinism, you know, that he's, he's a libertine preacher. And I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones this last week, and he was just saying that, you know, that might be a good test for a good preacher, that if a preacher is preaching a gospel, that the hearer might hear to think and be tempted to think, well, it's so free, it's so gracious, it's so loving that all I must do is trust in Christ, that they'd be tempted to be thinking, but wait a minute, maybe I should go off and sin some more. He said that might be a good test because that's where 
salvation by grace through faith alone should take us to thinking, oh, look how free it is. Not think, oh, what a drudgery this is. Oh, what I must do here. But, but look at how much, much it's, it's full of grace. It's all of God. And, of course, the, the conclusion would be, well, for God's glory, shouldn't we want to sin more to make, so we can glorify God even more? But this isn't a question that a Jew in uh, Rome might only be asking. This is a very, very practical question for all of us here today because this is not a unique question for 2,000 years ago. This has been a question that's been added in the, asked in the church for the, for the last 2,000 years throughout church history. There's always been, been what we would call antinomianism in the church, uh, kind of a long word that was uh, coined originally by Luther himself. In 1539, Luther wrote a book entitled Against the Antinomians. And that's, that's where the, fir- the word was first coined, putting together, crushing together two Greek words, anti-against, nomos, law, so against law or lawlessness. And so we see that he, there was a friend of his that taught this antinomianism, that you can just believe in Jesus and that's all you have to do and there's no law, there's no need to obey. We can just go on and do whatever we want. And he addressed that in, in one of his writings. But it wasn't just back in the 1500s. It's today. This is very practical today. It's an objection that those who uh, hold to a different gospel have today. They're going to come and attack you or attack the church or attack the message that's being preached as uh, well, it's justification by faith. It's, it's just promotes lawlessness. I mean, a while back, a young man drove up to our front door on a Schwinn bicycle, and he had a very friendly smile on, a little name tag on, on his uh, lapel. And he says, hi, I'm from, I'm from the Latter-day Saints. And I said, well, glad to meet you. I says, I'm also a Latter-day Saint. And he kind of was surprised. as you are? I says, yeah. And then I went into the gospel. By the way, we all are Latter-day Saints. Did you know that? We're in the latter days, and we're in chapter 6, and we're saints. You know, we've been sanctified. We're, we're saints. And, but then when I started sharing with him the gospel, he realized, well, we must not be of the same, the same faith because uh, I was sharing with him. The gospel is simply believing the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Trusting in Him. It's a gift of God. There's no works involved anywhere. And his, I'll never forget his response. He says, well, doesn't that lead to more sin? And that's a typical response to, to justification by faith. Doesn't that lead, lead to more sin? But it's not just the LDS. I mean, and others that would come knocking at your door. It's, it's modern evangelicals that, that need to hear this, this truth. Because as twisted as this objection might sound, it's not uncommon to hear this in many modern evangelical circles today. You might hear it rephrased and, you know, put different terminology, but it goes like this. If salvation is a free gift of God, and it is, right? And, I, and you also believe that once saved, always saved, right? Well, then why not sin? I mean, think about it. If you were eight years old, you walked down the aisle, you prayed a prayer, you accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, or at least as your Savior, and you, and you walked down the aisle, and, and you know that in your life, 
you, once you've prayed that prayer, you will never lose your salvation. Why not go out and sin? And how many young people do that? Having made a decision for Christ, having walked down an aisle, having prayed a prayer, and then they go on and just live their life, and you see absolutely no change, no difference in their life at all. It'd be the same, it would be the same teaching. I mean, how many are following this logic? I mean, Luke, Luke, uh, Jude actually warned us of this, of this gospel. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago who were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's, a, it's perverting the gospel of grace, leading to greater sensuality. I mean, we see this reinforced. Maybe you grew up in churches like this. You walk down the aisle, you pray a prayer, you live your life just like hell the rest, the rest of your life. But you know what you can do? You can always hear an altar call any Sunday, walk forward and rededicate your life. And so whether you're walking in, in, into a confessional booth or you're rededicating your life week after week, you, you, you fail to understand that, that, that the life of grace does not yield sin. The life of grace yields what? Holiness. And we're going to see that fleshed out in 6 through 8 as we continue to go through these chapters. You hear the call and you live a holy life. And then, then typically what happens is then the same people, when they hear the call to live a holy life, they'll just point the finger at you and say, that's legalism. That's moralism. No, that's not legalism. That's moralism. That's the call of the gospel to live a holy life as Christ did. So you hear the thinking in the gospel today that's sometimes labeled easy believism. Salvation comes by faith in Christ. And I don't know if you were raised this way, the churches you went to were this way, but easy believism is, was very, very popular in, in the U.S. And it simply went, goes like this. If you believe in the historical facts about Jesus Christ, if you have intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus died, that He was buried, and He rose again, you say, do you believe that? You say, yes, you're saved. You're a Christian. You never bowed your knee to the Lordship of Christ. You've never repented of any of your sins because that's adding works to salvation. You can have salvation without fruit. You can have salvation and continue a life of sin. In other words, you can be justified without being sanctified. And what I want you to see is this, and this is very important, is, is, is many of, of, of the gospel messages that are being preached today draws a line between chapter 5 and chapter 6, and it says, yes, you, every, everyone needs to be justified. Everyone needs to believe in Christ. But justification and sanctification don't go hand in hand. You might want to get sanctified somewhere down the line. You might want to be committed and, and, and just commit your life to Christ when you get older or whatever. But, but the two are not inseparable. Uh, and, and what we see Paul teaching here is the two are inseparable. You cannot be justified without being sanctified. Uh, it's not the gospel of the Bible. It's not the gospel of the Apostle Paul. Uh, all those who trust Christ must follow Him as Lord of their life. 
All those who trust Christ must have, by the grace of God, repented of their sins and turned from their wicked ways, and by grace of God turned to Christ and were converted through faith. Also, there's, let me give you one, one more reason why I believe this passage is very practical today is because this is one the tempter likes to use in your life. This is one where the enemy likes to come in and whisper into your ear and go, Psst, hey, how about this one? It's okay to sin. Go ahead. Don't you believe in grace? Psst, go ahead. You can ask God to forgive you and He'll forgive you. You once saved, always saved. You never lose your salvation. Just confess it. He will forgive. Hey, listen, you can have your, your grace and sin. You can have them both. And the tempter comes like that. And that's how he, he, he reaches us and tempts us to sin. And if we hear his lies, we give in. Of course, then, then we give in to sin. So hopefully you see why as, as twisted as this objection might be, and how, how practical it is for us to know Paul's response and Paul's answer. And I believe his answer here is, is we're going to see not only in the verse 2, but it really gives a death blow to all antinomianism and, and all lawlessness in, in the church today. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's the church response. By no means. Now, all I could find as I was working on this last week was uh, this is the strongest no word in the Greek language. You cannot find any other word in the Greek language that emphasizes absolutely not stronger than this one word. And it's like Paul saying, not only absolutely not, but no, no, no. How could you ask such a thing? And then he gives his explanation. And it's interesting, he answers the question with what? A question. And doesn't he do that often? I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll answer a question, and then he ask you a question. And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is what? Tucked away in the question itself. And so, short answer in verse 2b, uh, the rest of the chapter, we're going to see it spelled out in greater detail. This is just getting our feet wet in the water today, but we're, we're going to go wading and swimming in the, in the weeks ahead, so just, just hang on. Uh, how can we, who died to sin... Still live in it. That, that's the answer. A question. How can we, who died to sin... Now, grammar is important. Young people in your schooling, and you know, you've got... Ah, I got grammar, my teacher. Hey, listen. Grammar, especially in Scripture, it's so important. If you're going to properly understand the Word of God. Uh, verb tenses are important. And, and, and we see here Paul's use, and we've referred to it before, as the aorist in, in the Greek, which means... Something that happened at a point in time, a point in time action, that's not going to happen again. It happened. It's done. It's happened. It's erased. And, uh, and that's what he uses here when he says, how can we who died, we died, erased. What does that mean? We're all here as Christians, if we're the we. We died. We have died. We're not going to die. We're not dying. We're not in the process of dying. You're we're, we've died. So we, ha we need to understand that. And it's something that happened in the past. It didn't happen today in church. It happened in the past. And so we died. 
And of course, the we is who? It's believers. That's you and me. It's all of us in the room here who are trusting in Christ. We all died. And we died uh, to sin. What does he mean by dying to sin? I believe what, it, what Paul is doing here is using the word sin not as an individual acts of disobedience, like you might go and sin against your wife and get angry at home or something like that. But he's talking about a, a habitual pattern of sin in your life, kind of looking at the broad scope of your life being marked by sin. In uh, looking at sin more like a force or a power that's within you that dominates your body, something that's reigning over you in your life, a sin that reigns over you. That's how it was before you were a Christian. Sin reigned in, in, in your body. It, it, it overpowered you, and, 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 and so you were a sinner. And that sin died. Before you were saved, the Bible says, we're going to get into it in 6, you were a slave to sin. You were in bondage to sin. I mean, this is... Uh, and I was trying to think of an illustration. I know this falls short, but... but I was thinking of the difference between, you ever been in a bog, like a, like a marsh, you know, it's kind of a slosh through the marsh, you know, and the, the water, and, and that's how your heart is in sin. It's just, it's who you are. And you're just sloshing in sin. Everything about you is sinful. That died. Now, we still have puddles of sin, and rain comes, and things happen, and we see there's water in our lives, but we're not sloshing in it. It's not the continual pattern of our life. We're dead. We've died to that power of sin over our life and that influence and that love and that dominion of sin over our life. In fact, that's, this is true of everyone except the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is true of Paul as well. I mean... I, Paul's not saying you're going to be dead as sin, you're never going to sin anymore, you're going to be, live a perfect life. Is he saying that? No, he's not saying that. Because remember, the same Paul wrote chapter 7. And we're going to see in a little bit later in chapter 7 where, man, the things I want to do, I don't do, and I know the things I should do. And he's going back and forth, and he's wrestling in this body of death, he calls it. So he sinned, and he, he went through the battle. We still have a flesh. The flesh wars against the Spirit. We still sin. But we're not marked by sinners in the sense that we slosh through the sin of our heart like that. We're dead to sin. It no longer enslaves us. We've been released from its bondage in our life. How did we die to sin? How did this happen? Well, in 521, remember last chapter, so that as sin reigned, that's how it was before, it actually reigned over us uh, in death, grace also might now reign through you in righteousness. Now that that death has taken place, righteousness is reigning within us. Now, the question might come to our mind is, when did we die then? If we died to sin, it no longer has power to enslave us as it did before we were saved. And, uh, and that's a good question. We know what happened at a point in time. We know it happened at a specific point in time. We know that individually it happened when any one of you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. At the moment you were justified, you were sanctified. At the moment you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, at that moment you, you were no longer, you died to sin. 
and no longer under its dominion in your life. Now we're under the reign of grace. The moment you were justified, the moment you were saved, you were removed from that power of sin. Now, is this important? I think it is. Is that how you view yourself? Okay, you you trusted Christ. You're a Christian. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens after that? Do you see yourself as one who died to sin the moment you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? The power of sin was broken. You were free from its dominion. And you are no longer slaves to sin as you were once before. Now, does that mean we're, we, we don't sin? No, we still sin. There's still individual acts of disobedience. We're not talking about the, that. But we're no longer under its rule. It's thumb. It's dominion no longer controls us. We're no longer slaves to it. It's, we've, been, we've died to sin. You've been freed from the bondage of sin. You've been freed from the power of sin. You've been, you, you still have a flesh that wars against the Spirit. We, we, we still fall and we sin from day to day. That's the, part of, that's the way it's going to be to the very end. But we're progressively becoming more holy. You know, we're still, we still live in it. This is how it happens. He says, you still live in it, question mark. And I believe what happened was, is at that moment when you were born again, when you trusted in Christ, you were born again. You, you spiritually became alive. Uh, the darkness left. The light came in. The bondage was broken. You've been given a new heart. You've been given a new life. You've been given, you've been transformed. I mean, something radical happened right after you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a new person in Christ. You are not the same person you were before. A transformation took place. 6.14, we're going to see that for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. It's not going to dominate you anymore. So hopefully you see why this, this, these two verses and the rest of these few chapters is going to be so important to us in our Christian life and our Christian walk. What happens after we believe in Jesus? Justification cannot be separated from sanctification. The moment you trusted in Christ, you were justified. You were not guilty. You stand righteous before God. You were sanctified. And now you're growing in righteousness, practically speaking, day by day. You've died to the power of sin in your life. Calvin says this. He says, those who separate these two doctrines, that is justification and sanctification, as though Christ might justify without giving a newness of life, shamefully rend Christ asunder. They take Christ and just rip Him apart if you believe the two can be separated. Christ saved us from sin, not to go off and sin some more but to have sin removed from our lives, to produce holiness in our life and purity in our life. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone for the whole, without holiness, which no one will see the Lord. That's how important this is. Without a changed life and without holiness and, and growing in God's grace and repudiating and repenting of sin, no one's going to see Christ in the end. 
And again, it doesn't mean that sanctification brings perfection of life, but it does release us from the power and its dominion in our life. So my prayer is, is this, that God might take a passage like this and cause us to see this inseparable connection between being justified by faith and being sanctified by the work of the Spirit of God in our life. That this morning as you sit in your seats and you, 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 you identify yourself as a Christian, you would also see yourself identifying as one who actually sins dead in me. Do you believe that? The dominion of sin in your life is dead. Once and for all, it's gone. Now, now, sin's not gone, but it's dominion over you. You can't say, well, you know, sin made me do it. I mean, not anymore. You're a new person in Christ. You've been made spiritually alive, and you begin to grow in holiness throughout your life. See, there's no such thing as a divine life without divine living. The two go hand in hand. And salvation is more than just a judicial determination that you're not guilty. It's also a transformation that takes place where you're being framed and formed in the image of God. So I was sharing in Sunday school this morning, <clears throat> there are no flatliners in the Christian church. You know what a flatliner is, right? I mean, you put the old EKG machine on and someone's there laying there and as long as you've got a wave going, you're, you're alive. But once that, that, that wave goes flat, that's it. We're dead. There are no flatliners. And by that I mean there, there's no such thing as believing in Jesus and living just the way you've always lived and, and continue to be flat. If that's the case, you're dead. You're not spiritually alive. You're lost and you're without Christ. Because Christ brings life and He brings uh, such a life and He brings holiness that we begin to grow in grace throughout the Christian life. New life, trusting in Christ, can't continue in a life of sin. We hate it. We don't want to tolerate it anymore. We battle with it every day. We don't go out and swim in it and think this is the best thing in the world like we used to. By God's grace, you have turned and are pursuing the pathway of righteousness. And God might find us all on that King's Highway this alongside of Christian. Now let me just give a warning To those of you who are here professing faith in Christ, let me ask you some questions. And I want you to think about these questions when it comes time for the Lord's table in just a few minutes. You might just, in the quietness of the morning, ask yourself questions like this. Can I recognize spiritual fruit in my life? You know, I've read through 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I've read through... Uh, Galatians chapter 5. And can I honestly say that I, I see God forming me, forming me from the inside in, into the very holiness that, for which He saved me. And, and by His grace, I, I, I praise Him for those changes. Is your heart marked by a desire to flee from all sin? There's a detestation that's come into your life by God. And, and not only do you hate sin, but, but you want to do everything you can possibly do to flee from it. Is your life marked by being set aside for God and away from the world? Does your heart beat with a passion for holiness? 
Are you living in sin as a, as a professing Christian? Because if so, if that is the realm that you live in, it reveals a person who might not be a true convert of God. Uh, I think it was uh, Al here was sharing with us Ephesians 2.8, right, earlier. You know, we, we all know 2.8, right? For by grace, well, depending on your translation, have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it says. I still have the King James going in my head. It's a gift of God. It's no works, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, and we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. There you see both, both aspects. We're saved by grace. It's a gift of God. Nothing, no works, nothing we can do. But if we are saved by grace through faith, trusting in Christ, there will be what? Good works. And they'll come out of our lives. And that's nothing we did, but He, he did it through us. Titus 2.11 says similarly, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, listen to this, what the gospel does, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I ask you, for those who are here and you're wondering, what in the world has he been talking about? This seems so strange to me. And I just might ask you, if you're thinking something like that, if, have you experienced in your life the kind of change we're talking about, this transformation that comes from God? Have you experienced dying to sin, dying to sin? Or is your heart marked by one who's never really ever turned away from sin? Your life's just what it was when you were 14 years old or when you are 5 years old or 2 years old. Nothing's changed. Then the Scripture would come back to you and say to you quite loudly, then, then you're here today without Christ, and you're here today without life, and you're here today without hope. You're here today without forgiveness. Remember the Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, when, when he went through the gates, he immediately stepped onto that narrow pathway that leads to life and righteousness. And by, by the grace of God... He stayed on it pretty much all the way to the end. But here's the key. He couldn't just hop over the fence and come in his own way and, and just try, try and live the Christian life and try and walk the path without going through the gate. And that's why all of us, we need to ask ourselves, have we gone through the gate? Have we come to Christ? He's the gate, the gatekeeper. He's the one whose sacrificial death on the cross paid for all of our, my sins, and in the process, in dying for them and paying for them, He and He alone brings the gift of everlasting life and forgiveness. He could have made it hard. He says, you want everlasting life? You want your, your sins forgiven? Take out your checkbook, put it in the box back there, and give everything you have, and then you will be saved. Or you, you, you worship me every day in church. You come to church every day for the rest of your life. I mean, he could have put works, you know, and, and then, then you got to do this and you got to do that. And, but he, he didn't. It's a gift. It's a free gift. It's of grace. 
to all who will come and receive him through faith. And the moment you believe and you bow to his lordship in your life, you die to yourself, you die to sin, he no longer rules over you, and you never turn back. You're on the road that leaves, leads to the celestial city. So I, I just call you, if you haven't come to Christ, come to him today. And let me just uh, close by saying that we've only kind of waded in the water here a little bit today. We got our feet wet and splashed around a little bit. But we're going to the next uh, six, seven, and eight, we're going to dig deep. And there are, there are nuggets in this, this, these chapters that are just a rich blessing. I know they will be for you. And he's going to be unfolding them for us in the next three chapters. So, Father, we close with a word of prayer. Lord, where do we begin by simply just thanking you, Father, for such gracious provision for us? Lord, you did for us what we could never do ourselves. There isn't one of us that would just normally flee to the arms of the God who created us. Our whole city stands as a witness against such thoughts. But Lord, you were kind and gentle and merciful. And you came to us and called us. And you brought your truth to us and revealed to us your son Jesus and and helped us understand all that he's done and, and, and make him see, be seen as so compelling that none of us could, in this room who are Christians, could, could in any way not run to Christ, not flee to Christ and be saved. But Lord, we don't want to live our lives to ourselves. Oh Lord, help us as your church to live a life that is in conformity with your word, that's in the image of Jesus that reveals a transformed life and heart. Anyone here today without Christ, Lord, would you open their eyes to see and open their ears to hear? Bring their wills to be wills that would be wanting to trust in you and you alone. Oh, Lord, you're a good God. I wish we had all afternoon to give testimonies of praise from all of our lips of the wonderful work of grace you've done in each one of our families. But, Lord, you... You deserve eternal praise. We look forward to that day when we see Jesus face to face. In his name we pray. Amen.